Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, then follow the links and see where it takes us. So John, what is your random article today? Well, Eric, it's the Electoral District of Macquarie, <laughs> which is an electoral district in the Australian state of New South Wales. Hmm. Created in 1894 and named after the Macquarie River. It was abolished in 1920. And so, now then, I have a list of six people who were, uh, you know, who ran mm. in that 20-year time frame <laughs> that it was a place <laughs> that existed. Sounds exciting. But I also have links to Australia, New mm. South Wales, a guy by the name of McGurr. His name's McGurr. Oh, McGurr. never mind. I only have links to five people here because two of them are Thomas Thrower. <laughs> two of them are Thomas Thrower. Um, so, uh, not that that isn't scintillating information, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to go ahead and defer and say, uh, what do you have, Eric? I have Maria Island National Park. Hmm, okay. And it occupies the whole of Maria Island off the coast of Tasmania, Australia. So we're stuck in Australia. <laughs> yeah. We're not getting away from Australia this episode. That's nope. fascinating. That's an interesting yeah. choice. Yeah, okay. that's, uh, Wait surprising. a minute. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't we start out with a list of endangered things in Australia? Or uh, no, no, invasive yeah. things in Australia. Invasive just last in Australia week. last week. Are we no. stuck in Australia? <laughs> Is something wrong? Did you did you get a different internet service? Are you buying internet from from no. Australia now? Do you know? I do. Did Blue Ridge get bought out? <laughs> What's going on? Hmm. I don't know. I think I feel like Wikipedia has secret algorithms running. Yeah, to promote certain like <laughs> things. So we haven't come across a moth in a while. It's, yeah. taken, it's been a now, while. Now since it's we've like had you know what? I'm gonna give them Australia. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. What? Um. So, Maria Island National Park yeah, let's is go there. northeast of Hobart, or about 90 kilometers by road, to Triubana. 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 Followed by a ferry ride. Oh, wait. Oh, okay, so... Oh, so it's you, not... <laughs> you have to walk 90 miles, or drive 90 miles, and then take a ferry. Okay. Okay. And... Uh, the island has a mixed history, including two convict er- eras, two industrial eras, the farming era, and finally becoming the national park that it is today. It is a mecca for visitors, hmm. providing an array of interests for the day tripper or overnight visitor to the island. Huh. That's cool. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Established in 1972. All right. So, what does it mean by by convict area of yeah. eras? That's 
It says that the first convict era was from 1825 to 1832, wherein Lieutenant Governor Arthur, uh, that was his name, Arthur, <laughs> uh, established a penal settlement in Darlington in 1825 mm. for convicts whose crimes were not so not of so flagrant a nature <laughs> that they should be sent to the notorious Macquarie Harbor settlement on Tasmania's west coast. So wait, they they started sending convicts to Australia. Yeah. And then Australia started sending convicts to other places. <laughs> to Tasmania. And then Tasmania started sending convicts <laughs> to the islands around Tasmania, yes. Okay. A small party of soldiers under the command of Lieutenant Peter Murdoch and 50 male prisoners arrived at the island aboard the ship Prince Leopold in 1825. Initially, housing was log and bark huts or tents. After the arrival of a new commandant, Major Thomas Lord, in August, more permanent buildings were erected using bricks made on the island and sandstone excavated from the sea cliffs. The commissariat store and the penitentiary can still be seen today and are the only surviving buildings from this era. Industries such as cloth, blanket, and shoemaking, tanning, timber cutting, and pottery were fostered. Frequent escape attempts, <laughs> complaints about relaxed discipline, and the opening of Port Arthur in 1830 led to the decision to, the, to uh, abandon the settlement in 1832. Yeah, I feel like sending convicts to a beach resort is probably yeah. not... <laughs> hey guys, here's this tropical <laughs> island. Just uh, make, some, make some nice houses and uh, feel bad. Feel feel punished for those murders you did. <laughs> you think about what you did. You think about it okay. on this nice beach island <laughs> that we've gotten just for you, where nobody else is going to bother you. You can't escape. Uh, all right. I mean, okay. okay. My question, though, is why is anybody trying to escape? Yeah. There's no discipline. There's no it's reason. It's like, hey, we're on this awesome island. <laughs> like, okay. I think maybe the entire thing that was wrong with Australia was, like, all of these, like prisoners and all the prison guards all got to go to these <laughs> tropical islands and Britain was like now you take these prisoners there and you make sure they get punished and everybody was just kind of like are we going to tell it's going to be really fun nah. <laughs> okay alright let's go let's do this and they just went you know yeah. so they, they stopped they stopped having prisoners on the on the island here at Maria Island for about 10 years and then suddenly in 1842 they decided you know what no that wasn't a bad idea let's do that again <laughs> Um, the second convict area, or you say area? I mean era. I do, honest. Under the privation system of the 1840s, convicts were withdrawn from private service and grouped together in government stations. Probation stations were established at Darlington and Point Le Sueur. Le Sueur. Le Sueur. The Sueur. Point the Sueur. Um. Agricultural work was a key activity for convicts, particularly as there was in excess of 400 acres of crops to maintain. Mm. So it wasn't all fun and games. During the daylight hours, they still had to do some work. <laughs> well, they got to get food somehow. They, they do. I really don't understand. Like, they're making food for themselves on a yeah. chop line. It does not seem bad. Uh, officials and 600 male convicts in Darlington were housed in old and altered structures reused from the first convict era. I got it right that time. <laughs> and new buildings were also erected. Overcrowding and ill-adapted buildings were constant problems. <laughs> okay. Okay, that might be an issue. Okay. 
But there's so many there are so many prisoners that they had they were overflowing an entire island where there are 400 <laughs> acres. There's 400 acres. How many That's people is that? 400 acres of just crops. There's that means there's more than that. Oh, wait. There is uh, the land area is 96 kilometers, 96 square kilometers. So that's a lot. How in the world was that overcrowded? What did they do? There's wrong? only 600 guys there. So what? Well, hey, you're on my acre. <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> okay. Um. Well, <laughs> well, let's see. I mean, it doesn't really say how that era ended. It just says they did in 1850. But, I mean, it. it says when it ended, 1850, but... Then, uh, 1888. It was the first industrial era. Um, the potential for wine and silk production, fruit growing, and tourist developments attracted an Italian entrepreneur, Diego Bernacci. Oh, in Diego. 1884, Bernacci secured a long-term lease of the island from the Tasmanian government, and the Maria Island Company was formed. Uh, <laughs> companies, it's uh, yeah. never a good sign. No, that's that's not a good start, <laughs> especially when Britain's in the equation anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, just how they that's just how they pretend to not take over everything. Yeah. Bernacci renamed Darlington San Diego. Huh. Where in the world is Carmen? <laughs> and the little town soon had in excess of 250 residents of a variety of different nationalities. Bernacci established a small cement works, which made use of the island's limestone deposits. The opening of the Grand Hotel in 1888, complete with dining, billiard, and accommodation rooms, saw the promotion of the island as a pleasure resort and sanitar- sanatorium. No, those two things aren't the same. <laughs> uh, also constructed during this era were the Coffee Palace, a row of workers' cottages known as the Twelve Apostles, and six terraced cottages u- built using bricks from the demolished convict separate apartment cells. <laughs> apartment cells. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, some of the old convict buildings were remodeled to house workers, managers, and shops. And Bernacci's family resided in the old religious instructor's house for a time. Sadly, the 208-cell apartment block from the second convict area was demolished and the bricks used to build other buildings and roads. It happened to you, too. It happened just there. <laughs> Did you hear that? You, you aried. Did I? You aried. I knew it. <laughs> it's not just me. It's a slip. <laughs> Legit. There's something about it. It's not, it looks like area. Yeah. It just feels like it should be area. <laughs> it's the second convict area. You know, it's where they were. It's where they lived. It's the area they occupy. <laughs> okay. But I, I feel it's interesting that the writer of this article chose to s- say that this is a sad development. Yeah, like that what? They, it's like, well, sadly, they tore down the apartment block and reused all the bricks to build other buildings. Oh no! Okay, sadly, <laughs> like why did you want? Did you really want to remember that there was a prison here at one point? Is that like that important? All of us yeah, really they're was building a prison. buildings and roads with these yeah. things. It's not like, oh, we just <laughs> tore down these buildings and burnt the bricks. We just, we just tore him down because Jumped we could. Sea. We just tore him down because we didn't need to and we wanted to. That's why. They, they killed they thousands would, of fish by dumping them in the ocean. They didn't want to float more bricks to an <laughs> island, so they used bricks that were already there. 
Like, yeah. That's not even wasteful. Like, how can you be mad? And it used to be overcrowded, so they're just they're know? just taking down some of the extra apartments. So what's wrong with that? Seems like a good thing. Yeah. Um, only two photographs exist today of this building. Uh, although Bernacci was enthusiastic, the Maria Island Company went into liquidation in 1892, and Bernacci promoted the island's cement industry and formed a new company for that purpose. It was short-lived, and in 1896, Bernacci and his family left for Melbourne and subsequently London. Afterwards, tourists continued to frequent the island, where Rosa Adkins ran a boarding house in the former coffee palace. And then we have a second industrial era. And this one starts in 1925. So this is a good 30 years later. Um, and it's good old Diego again. He comes back. Mm-hmm. And he's I determined to exploit the mine's limestone deposits for cement and expand on his initial plans. So he spent 30 years regrouping getting better funding and he's come back for a second round and the national portland cement company limited was formed in 1920 the annual report for 1923 revealed that a new 620 foot pier had been constructed yes (laughs) (laughs) and that buildings were being erected including a 200-foot-high chimney stack of reinforced concrete. A railway line conveyed limestone to the works. Machinery worth over 125,000 pounds had been imported from Copenhagen and London. The works were officially opened in February 1924. Community life prospered for the 500 or so residents. Social and sports clubs sprang up, Dances were held, and the old chapel was used as a cinema. Wow. A school was erected for the employees' children. The schoolmaster's house of this period is now the ranger's office. Unfortunately, production problems were experienced at the works from an early stage, and together with the effects of the Great Depression, caused the cessation of business in 1930. Wow. So that community was, like, there and gone in the course of five years. Wow. Yeah, they they really got things moving. They, uh... They had everything they like, happening, like, <laughs> on, like they were, they were. Yeah, in five years, people. they were just like, all right, we got sports clubs, we got, uh, a, you know, movie theater, and we got a school, and we gotta go because there's no reason to stay here. <laughs> and bye. Oh, we're all out of money. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sudden. Okay. So this this poor little island that everybody keeps trying to go there. Prisoners can't make it work. Agrarians <laughs> can't make it. Or well, we haven't gotten to that yet. But uh, industrialists can't make it work. So they try uh, going old school. They try going agrarian on it. Farming era, 1930 to 1972. Well, that's a nice long period. It is. It's uh, the longest one so far, I think. So I mean, people are growing food. Everybody needs to eat. This seems like a it's a tropical island. It's gonna be warm. It's gonna be good. Mm-hmm. It's arable. Maybe this will... Maybe this... Maybe this... Yeah. <laughs> uh, after the conclusion of the second industrial area, era... <laughs> again! Again with this! Uh, starting immediately after the second industrial era. 
more importantly, uh, Maria Island became a quiet home to a few farming families, in particular the Adkins, French, Howe, Robbie, Hunt, and Hai families spent many years on the island. The Adkins family in particular have a longer association with the island than any other name, with four generations of them calling the island home, commencing in the 1880s and continuing until the 1960s. A number of these families' names are cemented into the island's history by having buildings, farms, or sites that still have their name. These include the Adkins House, burnt down in recent years, French's Farm, Robbie's Farm, Hunt's Cottage, Howell's Farm, and Hayes' Farm, site only. <laughs> Farming ended when the Tasmanian government began purchasing properties from their owners in preparation for declaring the island a national park. Ooh. So it didn't really fall into disrepair. They simply, the Tasmanian government simply said, we want this. <laughs> Eminent domain. Boop. Done. So I guess like all these guys were just like, you know what? We're not leaving. We're going to stay here and keep trying to make it work. And they did. Yeah. Until the Tasmanian government walked up and said, hi, we'll give you money, leave. Yes. <laughs> and finally, we've, we're here. We did it. We made it. The National Park, 1972 Yay. until now. The, f- the first venture to not fail yet. <laughs> um, in 1972, Maria Island was, of course, declared a National Park. From the early 1970s, various species of fauna were released onto the island, including mammals and birds such as emus from mainland Australia, and Cape Barren Geese. The island's first ranger was Rex Gattenby. Prior to the island being declared a national park, many of the historical cement work buildings were demolished due to the danger of the danger the government thought the buildings would present to tourists. Hmm. At this time, buildings were not generally considered historically significant. Hmm. So, the historic and national natural assets of Maria Island attract many tourists. Um, there's still industrial and convict buildings, and there are ruins, and um, natural features, and walking areas, and uh, got Mount Maria, which is the highest peak on the island, at 711 meters, and approximately is a six-hour return walk. And there's Bishop and Clerk, a peak at the island's northern end, which is about a four-hour return walk. And then there's sandstone cliffs, known as the Painted Cliffs, which are just south of Darlington. About a 30 minutes walk north of Darlington are the Fossil Cliffs, located by in Fossil Bay with and packed with fossils. There's tons of animals here. Got birds. And it says the island has been identified by BirdLife International as an important bird area, or an IBA for short. And there's a lot of endangered uh, swift parrots and 40 spotted paradolites, and over 1% of the world population of Pacific gulls. Whoa. As well as the as populations of most of Tasmania's endemic bird species. As mentioned before, the Cape Barren geese, and there's eastern gray kangaroos, eastern batongs, and other marsupials. 
common wombats. And um, there's also tiger snake, lowland copperhead, and white-lipped snake. There are some marine features as well, including a marine area which stretches from Fossil Bay on the northern coast of the island to the return point on the west coast and extends up to a kilometer offshore. Southwest of the Painted Cliffs and just outside the marine section of the park, a disgust uh, disused rather coastal trader was sunk in 2007 to form a dive reef. There are also numerous shipwrecks found around the island. This place sounds really cool. Yeah. Except there's 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 a few things. There are no shops at all on the island. That's weird. Yeah. So regardless of whether you visit for a day or a longer stay, all equipment and supplies need to be taken with you. Wow. Yeah. That's a little bit of a that, downer. That's strange. I feel like a government-run thing, they would be like, hey, buy all our stuff. Here's a concession stand. Here's some <laughs> restaurant. Here's a place to stay. Like, okay, maybe maybe not a hotel. So you, you go and enjoy the natural climate yeah. and just, like, camp there and stuff. But maybe, like, At have least, a place to get yeah. food. Yeah. Something. But I guess maybe they expect people to, like, stay off-island and then travel in for the day and then go back. Uh, so Darlington has both reticulated and tank water. There are also camping areas at Darlington, French's Farm, Robbie's Farm, and Encampment Cove. The French's Farm, Encampment Cove, and Robbie's Farm campsites have tank water. Rangers should be consulted about the supply of water in these tanks prior to venturing south from Darlington. In Darlington, the former penitentiary has also been converted into accommodation with each room containing bunk beds and a wood heater. There are showers at Darlington. Also at Darlington, there are gas barbecues for visitors. So if you want to go there, go to Darlington. <laughs> yeah. Darlington has all the things you need to not go completely off the grid. <laughs> and except for, you know, food. You need to bring the food. Right. You need to bring yeah. a lot of food. They have or a place to stay. if you want to, you could just, like, hunt wombats or something. Go hunt an emu. That'll, yeah. keep, you, that'll keep you fed. <laughs> That's a big bird. It's a lot of meat. Yeah. I wonder how they taste. I don't think I've... Probably pretty good. Probably decent. It's, it's like a like an oversized turkey. Yeah. All right, so uh, that was actually quite a thorough for a state park, yeah. for a national park. That was very thorough. It was very well done, except for uh, the Kaj instruction. Yeah, Kaj instruction. Other than that, though, you know, like very, very historically researched. Although I suppose it's just kind of an Australian thing to have very varied uses for mm. any given slab of land, considering yeah. how everything started out as sort of a prison. So, you know. Um, well, that being said, we can get any number of uh, animal-related things here, or Tasmania-related rela- things. Mm. There are some devils there, I hear. <laughs> kind of do want to check out see if we can get to a Tasmanian devil. Oh yeah, we totally could. All you gotta do is go up to this link up here, like uh, Tasmania, and then. Uh, we're halfway there. Yeah. Alright, let's go to Tasmania. Here we go. Abbreviated as Taz. Taz. And known colloquially <laughs> as Tazzy. Not to be confused with the wrestler Taz. Or Tasmanian Devil. At least not yet. It is an island state of the Commonwealth of Australia. 26th largest island in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not too shabby. Population of 517,000 people as of September 2015. 
almost half of which resides in the Greater Hobart Precinct, which forms the metropolitan area and state capital of the largest city, Hobart. Uh, yes. <laughs> Who knew? Hobart knew. <laughs> um, it has an area of 26,410 square miles. <laughs> Covers the main island, or that main island covers twenty four thousand nine hundred eleven square miles. You, you put an emphasis on area because you were about to say area there instead. <laughs> this is going to go the other way that time, wasn't it? <laughs> you were close. <laughs> it's stuck now. Now we're now we're permanently in reverse. We're broken. We can never say those words again without. Oh, this house is 1,500 square foot era, and. Uh, <laughs> You mean area? E- sure. Of course I do. Oh, boy. Um, the island is believed to have been occupied by aboriginals for 40,000 years before mm. English colonization. It is thought the Tasmanian aboriginals were separated from the mainland aboriginal groups about 10,000 years ago when the sea rose from the Bass Strait. Or Bass Strait. I don't know. Hmm. Doesn't really tell me how to pronounce it, but hey, there you go. Uh, the aboriginal population was estimated to have been between 3,000 and 7,000 at the time of colonization, but was almost wiped out within 30 years by a combination of violent guerrilla conflict with settlers known as the Black War. Hmm. Uh, it was an intertribal conflict, and from the late 1820s, the spread of infectious diseases killed a lot of the aboriginal people because they had no immunity. The conflict, which peaked in between 1825 and 1831 and led to more than three years of martial law, cost the lives of almost 1,100 aboriginals and settlers. The near destruction of Tasmania's aboriginal population has been described as some by some historians as an act of genocide by the British. Hmm. So, we got some devils? Or yeah, let me... Uh, just sad genocides? Or... Yeah. Bring up the devils, yeah. Okay. Ecology. Um, island of Tasmania is home to the thylacine, a marsupial which resembled a wild dog, known collo- colloquially as the Tasmanian tiger. Um, ah, yes. Because it had a stripe. And it became extinct in mainland Australia much earlier because of its competition by the dingo hmm. introduced in prehistoric times. Um, yada, yada, yada. The Tasmanian devil became the largest carnivorous marsupial in the world following the extinction of the thylacine in 1936 and is now found in the wild only in Tasmania. Hmm. So the Tasmanian devil is only in Tasmania. And it's also, that's really cool. I didn't know that. That was the largest carnivorous marsupial in the world. That's, mm. that's neat. Yeah. All right. So should we bounce over to our friend, the Tasmanian devil? Let's do it. Let's learn more about this thing. What makes you spin around like a tornado? <laughs> that is the real question. <laughs> that's why we're here. To find out why this animal can pull off such feats of, of natural disaster-like behavior. The Tasmanian devil is a carnivorous marsupial of the family Dasyuridae, now found in the wild only on the Australian island state of Tasmania. It is 
currently endangered, believe it or not. Mm. It is characterized... Well, I figure if it's only found on one small island... Yeah, it must be. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to the whole world, it's yeah. probably pretty, pretty explicit. Uh, it is the size of a small dog. Mm. It became the largest carnivorous marsupial, as we said before. Uh, it is characterized by its stocky and muscular build, black fur, pungent odor, mm. extremely loud and disturbing screech, mm. keen sense of smell, and ferocity when feeding. Mm. There yeah. we go. That's, I, that's I'm starting to see. Tornado. Yeah. Starting to form. And the slobbering talk. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, These things are kind of cute. Yeah, they're, 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 they're going to look a little bit like uh, Skunk Mix the Rat, but the size of a dog. It's a really disturbing combination, <laughs> really. It should be it should be more disturbing than it is, though. It is, they, they are a relatively cute animal for being as uh, bloodthirsty and vicious as they are. <laughs> the Tasmanian Devils, large head and neck, allow it to generate among the strongest bites per unit of body mass of any extant mammal land predator. Any. Wow. And it hunts prey and scavenges carrion as well as eating household products if humans are living nearby. (laughs) Although it is usually solitary, it sometimes eats with other devils and defecates in a communal location. (laughs) Unlike most other desirids, the devil thermoregulates effectively and is active during the middle of the day without overheating. Despite its rotund appearance, the devil is capable of surprising speed Mm. and endurance and can climb trees and swim across rivers. Okay, so this is a pretty versatile little beast. Yeah. That's why it's a tornado. It can get anywhere. (laughs) Oh, wow. So they think that ancient marsupials migrated from South America to Australia tens of millions of years ago during the time of Gondwana and then they evolved as Australia became more arid fossils of species similar to modern devils have been found but it is not known whether they were ancestors of the contemporary species or whether the current devils coexisted with these species the date of the that the Tasmanian devil became locally extinct from the Australian mainland is unclear. Most evidence suggests that they had contracted to three relict populations around 3,000 years ago. And a tooth found in Augusta, Western Australia has been dated to 430 years ago. But archaeologist Oliver Brown disputes this and considers the devil's mainland extinction to have occurred around 3,000 years ago. And this disappearance is usually blamed on dingoes, which are absent from Tasmania, because they were seen as a threat to livestock and animals that humans hunted for fur in Tasmania. Devils were hunted and became endangered. And in 1941, the devils, which were originally seen as implacably vicious, became officially protected. Since then, scientists have contended that earlier concerns that the devils were the most significant threat to livestock were overestimated and misplaced. Devils are not monogamous, eh? and their reproductive process (laughs) is very robust and competitive. Males fight one another for the females and then guard their partners to prevent female infidelity. 
Females can ovulate three times in as many weeks during the mating season, and 80% of two-year-old females are seen to be pregnant during the annual mating season. Females average four breeding seasons in their life and will give birth to 20 to 30 live young after three weeks gestation. The newborn are pink, lack fur, have distinct facial features, and have indistinct facial features, I should say, and weigh around 0.2 grams at birth. Really small. As there are only four nipples in the pouch, competition is fierce, and newborns and few newborns survive. The young grow rapidly and are rejected from the pouch after around 100 days, weighing roughly 200 grams. The young become independent after around nine months, so the female spends most of her year in activities related to birth and rearing. So they have a pouch? They got a pouch, but only got four nipples in there. So there's only four room for four babies. You can have 30 kids, but you can only raise <laughs> four a year. And so mm. that is a pretty grim prognosis for a lot of those. Such is life, though. <laughs> oh, wow. So there apparently was in uh, the 1990s, or since the 1990s, a devil facial tumor disease, mm. which, as you can guess, is, um, you know... A disease to Tasmanian devils where there's a facial tumor. Um, it has drastically been reduced. It has drastically reduced the devil population and now threatens the survival of the species. Currently, programs underway to reduce the impact of this disease. Hmm. So that's how they became endangered, huh? Uh, yep. Oh, here we go. Yeah, this is it. Devil is an iconic symbol of Tasmania, and many organizations, groups, and products associated with the state use the animal in their logos. It is seen as an important attractor for to- of tourists to Tasmania and has come to worldwide attention through the Looney Tunes character of the same name. As of 2013, Tasmanian devils are again being sent to zoos around the world. <laughs> And an earlier name for these things was Beelzebub's Pup. It's kind of funny. Well, we have a link to the Tasmanian Devil character, if we so choose. All right. Man, these guys are fierce looking from the front. Yeah. And their jawbones are nothing to be tasseled with either. Look at those. Yeah. The anatomy of these things, like, just their head. Their head is the most intimidating thing. Yeah. Like. It's a really small and scrawny animal otherwise, and mm-hmm. kind of, like, lanky. It's almost a little like a bear, maybe. Yeah, very in much some like ways. that. Where there's just, but like... But, like, a skinny bear. Yeah. Like a skinny bear. Yeah. But then, like, from the front, it kind of looks like a bat. A yep. little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Got little fangs. Yeah, just minus wings, basically. Yeah. But it does look very much like what would be inside. It's got a lot of intimidating animals inside of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just just kind of like an amalgamation of all of the things that make you go, I don't want to get close to you. (laughs) (laughs) But they're resourceful little guys. Mm -hmm. Eating roadkill. Eating hunting down things. (laughs) Eating human things. There's a lot of uh, concern about these being hit by cars. So there are signs <laughs> that tell you both that there are 
Tasmanian devils present, and that you should be afraid of them. <laughs> the signs are like, like you know, there are signs for like deer, for mountain lions. <laughs> There's kind of like silhouettes. No, the Tasmanian devil has like this full blown like gory depiction on this road sign. Like it's like its jaw is open. It looks like it's hissing at you. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. It's like, hey, if you run into one of these things while you're driving, it's probably going to scream at you and fight your car. Yeah. All right, let's bounce over. All right. And learn about the Looney Tunes character of of the the same same name. Tasmanian Devil Looney Tunes. Commonly referred to as Taz. Now, Taz is actually much more of an obscure character than one may think. Hmm. As the uh, Taz character was introduced in Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies, but he was only in five shorts before Warner Brothers cartoons closed down in 1964. Oh, wow. Marketing and television appearances later propelled the character into new popularity in the 1990s, which is why you and oh, I wow. are fond of him, because like, yeah. he reappeared solely for our childhood. Yeah. <laughs> so before us... He- Probably wasn't all that popular. Really, really wasn't. No, he would have been like the obscure, deep cut. Yeah, but now he was like for the '90s, he was that perfect edgy Looney Tunes character that was just like senselessly violent. <laughs> that they could just like bring him back. Wow, and look, they have a whole fan. They have a whole family family tree form over here. <laughs> Relatives, you have his dad. His dad was a Hugh Tasmanian Devil. Uh, his mom is Jean Tasmanian Devil. He has a <laughs> sister named Molly Tasmanian Devil. A brother named Jake Tasmanian <laughs> Devil. Uh, uncle named Drew Tasmanian Devil. He married the ever elusive Tasmanian She Devil. Uh, which I guess her full name then would be Tasmanian She Devil, Tasmanian Devil. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Dizzy Devil, who is his cousin. And. Slam Tasmanian is his descendant. Nationality is Tasmanian. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, all of his relatives have name names. Yes. Plus Tasmanian Devil. Right. But he is just Tasmanian Devil. And or Taz. Yeah. Yep, that's it. (laughs) Seems like his parents were kind of lazy. Uh, uh, we'll just, yeah. I don't know, we'll run out of names, just call him Tasmanian Devil. Just call him blank. <laughs> call him blank, <laughs> call Tasmanian him space. Devil. <laughs> space. <laughs> call him comma, Tasmanian <laughs> Devil. <gasps> Tasmanian Devil. It's <laughs> a pretty good name for a kid, comma, if you have a yeah. good last name. <gasps> requires you to breathe in first. Yeah. <gasps> Tasmanian Devil. He is generally portrayed as a ferocious, albeit dim-witted, omnivore with a notoriously short temper and little patience. Sounds about right. Yeah? Yeah. Um, His enormous appetite seems to know no bounds, as he will eat anything in his path. He's best known for his speech, consisting mostly of grunts, growls, and rasps. Uh, In his early appearances, he does speak English with primitive grammar. As well as his ability to spin like a vortex and bite through nearly anything. Taz does have one weakness. He can be calmed by almost any music. While in his calm state, he can be easily dealt with. 
1991, Taz got his own show, Taz and Tasmania, which ran for four seasons, in which Taz was the protagonist. Only in 1991 would a show with Taz as the central character work. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> for four seasons. The 90s were a weird time. So, um, a little bit about the creation of the character. Robert McKimson based the character on the real-life Tasmanian Devil, believe it or not. But more specifically on its carnivorous nature, voracious appetite, and surly disposition. Uh, Owen and Pemberton suggest that the character... I don't know who Owen and Pemberton are, by the way. Uh, doesn't really say... Uh, nope, they haven't been mentioned so far. Uh, Owen and Pemberton suggest that the character of the Tasmanian Devil was inspired by Errol Flynn, who is hmm. from Tasmania. Um, the most noticeable resemblance between the Australian marsupial and McKimson's creation is their ravenous appetites and crazed behavior. Although the bipedal Tasmanian Devil's appearance does not resemble its marsupial inspiration. It contains multi-layered references to other devils. He has horn-shaped tufts of fur on his head, similar to the devil's appearance, and whirls about like a dust devil, similar in appearance to a tornado, which sounds like several motors whirring in unison. Taz is constantly ravenously hungry. His efforts to find more food, animate or inanimate, are always a central plot device of his cartoons. Yeah, his his food doesn't necessarily... <laughs> he doesn't have to find anything. He just has to eat what's around him. Yeah. In most cases, he has eaten shelves and appliances. It does not matter to Taz. Taz will eat all. <laughs> Taz is everything. Taz is life. Yeah. In fact, though, his appetite serves as the impetus for McKimson's Devil May Hair, first released on <laughs> June 19th, 1954. In the short, Taz stalks Bugs Bunny, but due to the dim-woodedness and inability he has to frame complete sentences, he serves as little more than a nuisance. Bugs eventually gets rid of him and in the most logical way possible matching him up with an equally insatiable female Tasmanian devil. The character's speech, a deep, gravelly voice peppered with growls, screeches, and raspberries, is of course provided by the indisputable champion of voice <laughs> acting, Mel Blanc. Only occasionally would Taz actually speak, usually to utter some incongruous punchline. For example... <laughs> what for you bury me in the cold, cold ground? <laughs> and yet the character is capable of writing and reading. <laughs> A running gag is that when Bugs Bunny hears of the approach of Taz and looks him up in an encyclopedia and starts reading off a list of animals that Taz eats, Bugs finds rabbits not listed until Taz enters and either points out that rabbits are listed or writes rabbits on the list. <laughs> After the film debuted at theaters, producer Edward Selzer, held of Warner Brothers Animation Studio, ordered McKimson to shelve the character, feeling that it was too violent for children that parents would dislike this. Yeah. After a time with no new Taz shorts, studio head Jack L. Warner, one of the Warner Brothers, mm. asked what had happened to the character. Warner saved Taz. 
Taz Taz's career. <laughs> I've never seen the apostrophe applied to Taz to yeah. Z. That's I don't know how to do this. <laughs> Warner saved Taz's to Taz. I can't hit the Z hard enough. I don't feel like. <laughs> Warner saved Taz's career when he told Seltzer that he had received boxes and boxes of letters from people who liked the character and wanted to see more of him. McKimson would go on to direct four more Taz cartoons, beginning with Bedeviled Rabbit in 1957. McKimson would also pair the devil with Daffy Dunk in Daffy Duck. <laughs> Daffy Duck. You're getting ahead of yourself. You're getting into Space Jam. It's Space Jam. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. In uh, Ducking the Devil in 1957 as well, before putting him once again against Bugs in Bill of Hair and Dr. Devil and Mr. Hair in 1964. His last two appearances done by the classic Warner Brothers directors, writers, and voice actors were in Bugs Bunny's Looney Christmas Tales, appearing in the Fright Before Christmas segment, and at the very end, entering the sleigh full of presents. Later appearances. Uh, in 1983, he was in the movie Daffy Dunk's Fantastic Island as Yosemite Sam's first mate, and he appeared in the Looney Tunes show, voiced by Jim Cummings, as well. Uh, Where he was portrayed walking on four legs. Yeah, which his is, eyes were bloodshot red. That's so so. That's not right. <laughs> yeah. And of course. He was in some of the more recent attempts the Warner Brothers cartoons have made to get back onto the silver screen, namely uh, Looney Tunes back in action, but let's not talk about that one, (laughs) Uh, and the 1996 classic movie, Space Jam. Yeah. Is that where we gotta go? Everybody get up. Slam now. Everything going down like a space jam. Let's go to space jam. <laughs> Wave your hands in the air if you're feeling fine. We don't want to do overtime. Are we going to take this in overtime? Are we? Can we do space jam? Do we have time? Oh, we can go to space jam. We can go to space jam. Okay. All right. We got time. Go we got time for the jam. Always got time for space jam. Come on, let's slam. Because <laughs> I want to jam. Come on and slam, if you want to jam. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's the actual lyrics. <laughs> Good. Um, so, Space Jam is a 1996 American live-action animated sports comedy film starring basketball player Michael Jordan and featuring <laughs> the Looney Tunes cartoon characters. The film was produced by Ivan Reitman, directed by Joe Pitka, with Tony Cervoni and Bruce W. Smith directing the animation. Nigel Miguel was a basketball technical advisor. Because, you know, he didn't have Michael Jordan on set or anything <laughs> to, like, help with that kind of... You know, it wasn't exactly his expertise, so... Maybe he was just difficult to work with. He was like, hey, I don't want to teach other people. Yeah, actually, you know, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard things similar to that about Michael Jordan, so I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. The plot is wrapped around aliens visiting from outer space while Michael Jordan uh, retires temporarily from basketball. <laughs> um, so, okay, was this during the time that he actually retired from basketball and became a baseball player? Or is this like a weird 
like it's a retelling of that exact time okay like the date it's a weird thing because space jam is in point of fact a historical fiction film (laughs) because they do have the exact date and team that they like like they do have the exact dates right they have the date of when michael jordan retired from basketball spot on they have exactly what team he went to go play for the chicago white Sox. they're the team he plays for in the movie that's spot on too and then he returns to basketball exactly at the point in history he returns to basketball. <laughs> this movie, this movie is historical fiction at its most loony. That's just the tune of the whole thing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So the um, cast in this film, other than uh, Michael Jordan, uh, is Wayne Knight, Bill Murray, Larry Bird. Teresa Randall, um, and Patrick Ewing, Larry Johnson, Muggsy Bogues, Charles Barkley. I will, I will, I will just let you go ahead and guess which of the animated characters is voiced by Danny DeVito. Just go ahead and guess. <laughs> is it the is it the short, fat, bald guy? Whoa! <laughs> yeah, there he is. You got him. You got him. You found him. How'd you do that? That's crazy. <laughs> You're skilled. You're skilled, listener. You should you should put those talents to better use. One thing I am surprised of that I did not know is that Billy West voiced Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. Yeah, yeah. I they, did not realize that he did that. They actually had a document. I actually listened to the commentary track <laughs> for this, and they uh, do two commentary tracks. D. Bradley Baker and Billy West do one as themselves, and they go back and forth on how they do impressions on the commentary track of one another's voices. (laughs) They can both do Daffy, they can both do Bugs, but like Billy West does the better Bugs, so he was the guy who got the part. Uh, And um, there were just some scenes where it was easier to have two actors instead of just having one voice actor do them all. Um, but then there was another commentary where they literally stay in character as Bugs and Daffy <laughs> the entire time. And I think that, though, that they do switch parts at one point to see if anybody <laughs> will notice for a couple of minutes. And, yeah, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty awesome. Oh, Maurice LaMarche was Pepe Le Pew. That's actually pretty yeah. good. I didn't realize he was Pepe Le Pew in this at all. Pepe Le Pew is a pretty uh, stealthy voice, though, because, I mean, yeah. you just have to, like, mire yourself in the French accent <laughs> to, to be Pepe Le Pew. Pretty much. Um... But yeah, this was a uh, media sensation. Critical response was off the charts at uh, 36% based off of 50 <laughs> reviews on Rotten Tomato. Uh, uh, average rating of 5.1 out of 10. Oh, masterpiece. Great film. But ask anybody, they will tell you that it is a masterpiece. It is. Ask Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert do a thing or two about movies. Yes, and he he gave this movie a thumbs up, <laughs> as did Gene Siskel. Although his zeal was more subdued, but that's not an issue because Roger <laughs> Ebert was the one who had the best zeal. Yeah. Uh, in his print review, Ebert gave the film three and a half stars out of four, noting Space Jam is a happy marriage of good ideas. Three films for the price of one, giving us comic treatment of the career of adventures of Michael Jordan, crossed with Looney Tunes cartoon, and some showbiz warfare. The result is a delightful family movie in the best sense which means the adults will enjoy it too. And we did. Yes. And I still do. <laughs> I wasn't an adult then, but I mean, you know, as an adult, <laughs> I do still enjoy it. And part of the enjoyment is the soundtrack. 
Oh, yeah. Which is one of the best. And notoriously paradised throughout the <laughs> internet, as the theme song from Space Jam is such a catchy beat, but it's still just 4-4. Mm -hmm. It's still just yeah. a beat in 4-4. <laughs> and then you can just you can literally just set it to 90% of music. Pretty much. <laughs> is what it comes down to. Um... The the soundtrack is good enough that it went six times platinum, and uh, I did I owned a copy of this at one point um, when the movie had come out, but it was at a high point in R. Kelly's career, where uh, his song "I Believe I Can Fly" was on this album, as well as Steve Miller Band's "Fly Like an Eagle." Lots of flies. Oh yeah. That was um, that was iconic by the end of this movie. Hit him high by the monsters anthem or hit him high the monsters anthem by B Real, Buster Rhymes, Coolio, LL Cool J, and Method Man. Whoa, whoa, whoa Buster Rhymes is in there? <laughs> <laughs> he wrote music for Space Jam? No way. Apparently. Oh wow. The Monsters Anthem. <laughs> and then the uh, Basketball Jones by Barry White and Chris Rock. Wow. And then I Turn to You by All for One. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then For You I Will by Monica. And as mentioned before, the title song Space Jam by the Quad City DJs. Who, as far as I know, have not really done much else, but they don't need to because they created a masterpiece. So at the box office... Space Jam was a success, even though it has a budget of 80 million, only made 230 to 250 million internationally. It is the highest-grossing basketball film <laughs> of all time, and the third highest sports-grossing film, third highest-grossing sports film of all time, behind only The Blind Side and Rocky IV. Mm. Four? Wow. Why four? Maybe, like, by that time, people had been oh. seeing the other Rocky movies, and then they're like, oh, yeah, and then they see Dolph Lundgren's in, yay. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's not your reaction to it now. <laughs> I mean, like, this passive, hey. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, at the height of the Cold War. Well, that's true. No. I guess maybe. It was kind of like, like <laughs> we're definitely winning, so I don't know. <laughs> well, I guess that was around the same time that, like, uh, what's that other movie? Red Dawn? had come out yeah yeah i feel like maybe that era of movies it was just was about just punching <laughs> russians just about punching yeah. a couple of ruskies everybody wanted the russian bad guy yeah apparently um so there was a section down here that piques my interests sequel ah. in february of 2014 Warner Brothers announced a sequel, which is set to star LeBron James. Charlie Ebersole will produce through his production company, the company with a... Wait. <laughs> I feel like there's supposed to be a period in there somewhere. No. No, no, no. The company is the company. Charlie Ebersole will produce his production... Through his production company, the company. Oh. Capitalized. <laughs> uh, I was confused too, but uh, no. No. The Company, with a script by his brother, Willie Ebersole. John Berg will executive produce. Representatives of James denied the claim that he would be involved. In May 2014, James was quoted as saying, I've always loved Space Jam, my man. It was <laughs> one of my favorite movies growing up. If I had the opportunity, it will be great. Yes. Nice. Yes. So he's on board. <laughs> he is on board. We just need to get this on the road. 
In July 2015, James and his production company, Spring Hill Entertainment, signed a deal with Warner Brothers for television, movies, and digital content after receiving positive reviews for his acting role in Trainwreck and speculating a rumor that the production of Space Jam sequels may actually happen. In the meantime, current NBA players Blake Griffith and DeAndre Jordan of the Los Angeles Clippers participated in a live reading of the original film script with Seth Green and other actors Mm. for the comedy website Funny or Die. Nice. In February 2015, Nike and Jordan brand announced a re-release of Bugs Hair Jordan sneakers. (laughs) Okay, I gotta go to that. I gotta see that really quick. I didn't know those were originally a thing. Hair Jordan. Hair Jordans. (laughs) The original Hair Jordan collection debuted in 1992, four years before the original release of Space Jam. Wait. Before the release? Yes. Hair Jordan. Hair Jordan. Why? (laughs) Did that lead to the creation of Space Jam? Or... Hmm. I don't... It doesn't tell... It doesn't give me a picture of the Hair Jordans. They look strikingly similar to Air Jordans. Well, I mean, it's Nike. They they don't don't try... (laughs) I mean, it says air on it. I don't see the word hair on it. So... Are they... They're just... Oh, there's some that have hair. Are there? They're on the tongue. It's on the tongue of the shoe. Oh, okay. And there's like a... Instead of a Jordan jumping logo, there's a Bugs Bunny jumping logo. Oh, wait. Here, I think it's... Hair Jordan. There we go. Okay. I'd get hair Jordans. Me too, man. Me too. That's cool. That's a cool. That's a cool like twist <laughs> on, a, on a classic. Wonder uh, how much they uh, how much they go for. If you can get any of those on eBay, I know there's a real big. Nope. 125 oh. on eBay. That's it. All right. <laughs> Getting me some hair Jordans. Oh, there's another one. Uh, wait, another version that's 90 bucks. I don't know. Some of these don't look like hair Jordans. Some of these just look like. Well, Air Jordan. This one here is definitely a Hair Jordan for 130. Although, it, what size is it? Ugh, 7.5. Oh, that's no. not gonna work. That's not. That's not friendly. That's not for wearing. That's just to have. Ugh. I would wear the hell out of these things if I. Yeah, if I had a pair of these, I'm telling you, man. Oh, here we go. Uh, Air Jordan. Oh, that's Air Jordan. Air, yeah, that's what's so confusing about it. There's too many, and like they look exactly the same except for the, the tongue. Yeah, you gotta get the definitive. Gotta get the definitive. The jump, jumper. If that's even a thing, I don't know if that's a oh. thing. Wait, here's one. That Size one. eleven. That'll work. Hey, yeah, that's a hair. One twenty-five. Nice. Got him. Got him. Send me, send me that link real quick. I just, gotta, I just gotta see that these things are real. Because I'm having trouble finding the ones with the hair on them. Oh, if you look for the Hair Jordan 1, that's... That's the difference. Yeah. Air, jo- Air Jordan 1 mid-hair size. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you want to look for. Oh, that, that was sweet. Dude, yeah. Yeah. Do want. Do want. Mm-hmm. 
classic. Well, that's really cool. Okay. Didn't you know that was a thing? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so uh, one thing that I just saw here that I did not realize is the Monstars make a cameo in the Pinky and the Brain slash Animaniacs episode Star Warners. What? A parody of Star Wars. Um, yeah. So... Uh, really? Animaniacs is on Netflix right now, and I've been watching through it, so hopefully that episode comes up at some point soon. That'd be kind of cool. I had no idea that was a thing. Awesome. Yeah, I don't remember that one. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's probably in the later seasons. Well, when I they went to WB. 1993. When did Animaniacs start? 93 to 97, right? Or 99, I forget. They had some lapses between when they actually made seasons, because they had some difficulties between Fox Kids and CW. Uh, yeah, it says... uh. Um, yeah, started on nineteen in nineteen ninety three, on Fox Kids. Yeah, and it ran through ninety six, right? And uh, ran through ninety five on Fox Kids, and then in nineteen ninety five it started again on this, the WB. Right. Okay. So, um, yeah. Okay. So I should be. I mean, it should be in the first season, right? I think so. Uh, no, oh, not in the first season, because well, '96 was the first season on WB. So it's like third, fourth. Depends. Wait. When did the fourth season there? Well, the fourth. Because hmm. Space Jam's '96, so it has to be in Is the '96 '97 season. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, there's five seasons. Shoot. Yeah, and on Netflix, it's in volumes, not seasons. So, so okay, cool. Maybe I'll just skip ahead and find that episode. Yeah, I think it'd be worth it. That'd be fun. Be a yeah. good, good thing to see. Just to see what happened with... Cause I guess I just didn't get any of the episodes of Animaniacs after they made the jump of networks. Oh, uh, yeah. I didn't, get w, I didn't get the WB at my house, so I probably just never saw them. Yeah, I was very much a Fox Kids kid. I watched, you know... Oh, Spider-Man. Yeah. They had all the best ones. Yeah. They had all the superheroes. They had Teenage mm-hmm. Mutant Ninja Turtles. They had the Power Rangers. Yep. It was, it was the best thing. Mm-hmm. Followed closely by ABC. NBC and CBS yeah. had no game. <laughs> had no game. <laughs> this is true. I remember turning on, like, NBC one morning just to, like, see, like, like Pete Matisse Clubhouse or something that was really <laughs> undesirable on Fox came on. And I was like, let's see what else is on for a second. And I went to NBC, and I was just like, it was like golf. And I was just kind of like, <laughs> wow, you're really drawing a golf between your younger viewers and your network. <laughs> and that would go on to doom them. Yep. But that's their fault. We tried to warn them. We tried mm-hmm. to tell them we didn't want to watch golf. We wanted to watch <laughs> Fox Kids and ABC's one Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. But nobody would listen. <laughs> Fell on deaf ears. All right, well... There you have it from, what was it, Maria Island National Park to Space Jam. We made it. We did it. We did it. <laughs> we, got from, we got from exile and imprisonment in Australia to Space Jam. Yep. Ah, refreshing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh, movie was also uh, produced by Ivan Reitman. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh Thanks for joining us. Uh, go ahead and visit facebook.com slash TWC podcast and give us a like and follow. Go over to iTunes and rate and review us. 
And you can always check out new episodes on twc.ericturibio.com. And I would like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Rabbit's Foot Williams for our outro song. How apt. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. This was. Yeah. Yeah. Tenses. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, I need to watch this again. Yeah, me too. I'm going to go home and do that. <laughs> Michael's going to be downstairs watching the Flyers game. I'm going to be like, guess what? We're watching Space Jam. He's like, for the playoffs, and I have money on this. I'm like, it's not my fault you bet on sports. We're watching Space Jam. I have money on how many times the puck's going to flip. I have money on how many times I can watch Space Jam before I die. <laughs> Don't care what I do